Hello, you're listening to Designing the Revolution. This is chapter 28, The Revolution, part one. Okay, so here we are. <laughs> After 27 chapters, we finally arrived at the moment of truth, which is the ins and outs of the actual revolution itself, as it were, the episode that changes the regime. So just to clarify, that is the definition. We decided on this definition to give some sort of structure to the project, you know, at the beginning of this podcast. We're defining a revolution as a change of regime, not a change of government, not the disappearance of the state. It's a change in the constitution, the way in which um, the state is organised, as it were. Okay, so maybe some people will skip straight to this, um, to this episode because, you know, this is the, the actual final battle, as you might say. But the reason I've done these 27 episodes before we get to this point is to try and explain that success, successful design, is all about the micro details all about the sociability dynamics, all about understanding why assemblies work and all the rest of it that I've been going going on about. And I, I was listening to a pod podcast myself actually last night about the Roman Empire and they were saying like, look, the battles weren't that important, you know, that was tactics. The reason why the Romans won was because of logistics. In other words, it's those like 27 uh, chapters which are going to show you basically how it's going to be a done deal when it comes to the, the the main day, as you might say. All right, so the other thing to make clear or reiterate here is that the, the moment of revolution, the moment at which a regime falls and a new regime takes place is, is the battle, you know, and you can win the battle but lose the war. In other words, there's the build-up period, which is what I just talked about, but there's also the, the afterwards. And success here, and this is really important, success does not mean having a revolution. Success means having a revolution that remains successful. So there's a tension here, because obviously the moment of revolution is important, right? You know, there's no doubt about that. And at the same time, you have to keep, keep constantly in mind that there's the, the run-up to it and there's what happens next to it and there's this continuity and as professional designers as it were then we're looking at the whole system. All right so I'm going to go through broadly speaking the year before this revolutionary episode happens so I'm going to do this in part one and in part two I'm going to look at the final month and the final week and I'm going to utilise a bunch of tools, processes, frames, which, you know, come out of the preparation we've done. And this is, this strategy is being worked on. It's not abstract. It's being worked on by various groups in various countries, particularly in Western societies. And I'm going to put an email at the end. So if you watch this or listen to this episode and you're thinking, great, you know, I want to do this then please don't just, you know, do nothing, email me and I can put you in touch with groups and projects that are 
collectively trying to evolve the different main models, right? Because this isn't, you know, as we all know, it's not do A, do B, and you'll get C, right? There's A, B, C, D, E, F, and you mess about with them all, and, and you shake a dice or two, and then you come up with success or not, as the case may be. All right, but I am going to be referring to a number of problems which um, are emerging already in this pre-revolutionary period in 2023, as we go into 2024, because it's not easy, right? It's, you know, you're making history here, you're pioneering. So yeah, we have a bunch of tools and processes, but it's certainly yet to be worked out that that one works better than that one. So I'm going to go through, you know, a, a number of scenarios, um, but it's in that ballpark. All right, so um, broadly speaking, as we've discussed before, there's two, there's two broad outcomes here, broad processes. The first process is that a synergy between political activities and social movements and assemblies comes together and the pre-revolutionary context is such that it's not going to collapse in and of that moment of its own accord, but it's highly stressed, it's highly fractured, it's very vulnerable underneath the, you know, pretense of total control, as it were. And what this, these, these forces that are going to battle, as you might say, they push it over. So it's a proactive strategy. If, if, if this mobilisation hadn't happened, then the pre-revolutionary period would go on for a longer period. And as we're all aware, this is not an insignificant issue in the sense that we only have a few years to prevent all the tipping points from, you know, finally meaning the human race is going to go extinct or effectively extinct or whatever horrors we're going to have. In other words, we have a time limit here, which makes it unique in, in the human experience, right? Previous revolutions, you know, if the revolution hasn't happened this year, well, you know, that's pretty bad, we'll do it again in five years' time. That's not the case. So this is why this whole, you know, all these episodes have been pushing towards this idea, we have to push this, we can't just sit for the inevitable collapse of capitalism, as you might say. But talking of which, the other scenario is there is a major rupture, there's a big climate, 9-11, ecological disaster type thing or that combines or is triggered by some social collapse scenario. In other words, we we make this preparation for this revolutionary period but events actually happen and they propel us, as you might say, into a moment, a revolutionary moment. So it could be one, it could be the other and it's not particularly important to speculate what, what, which will be, you know, which will happen because the most important thing is that we prepare and the preparation is the same whether it's going to be a rupture scenario or whether it's going to be a proactive scenario. It doesn't matter. What matters most is that we prepare for both and that consists of the same preparation work that we've been doing over these previous episodes. All right, so before I get into the main, you know, main point of all this, the last thing to say, uh, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, right? You know, people will be watching this and they'll be going, we're, we're all encultured, we're all brainwashed or socialised into thinking 
revolutions are really difficult. You know, oh, this is great, Roger, but revolutions, you know, they're just really difficult. They're not going to happen. Da -da -dum -bum -bum. That's bollocks. It's total bullshit, right? Revolutions happen all the time. Historically, you know, every 30, 50, 70 years in Western societies. You know, one, sometimes over and over again, sometimes over a period of 20 years, you know, sometimes over one year. History is just a shit show, right, of war, disease, revolution. That's, that's what it is. And yes, you have periods of stability, and we've had this big period of stability for the last 30 years. But as we know, when we've studied the elites, the elites haven't changed. They're still totally incompetent and stupid, and they are going to collapse, like all elites collapse. So that doesn't mean it's a, you know, done deal. But what it means is we have to be realistic. And if we're being realistic, we can't be idealistic, but we can't be cynical. We need to be saying, yeah, this system is done. And it might be done next year. Or it might be done in three years or 10 years. Who knows? But it's coming and we need to prepare for it. All right. So, so there we are. Let's see how all this is brought together. So at this point, I need to, you know, concretize. I don't want to talk in abstractions. Most people, as we all know, you know, when it comes to revolutionary episodes, th th they talk in these abstractions about capitalism and blah, blah, blah. That's not going to help us. But if we concretize things, it also means to a certain extent we need to oversimplify. So as I go through this, you need to be aware of thinking, yeah, you know, it might be more complicated than that. But in order to get somewhere and get some understanding, we need to use categories and dynamics and simplify what might happen. So this is what I call like mid-level design. We know we're not talking about the top level, capitalism does this, capitalism does that. But we're not looking at the micro level either, you know, where you put the biscuits in the assembly and all that stuff. We're talking about what are the major social formations and how do they interact in order to bring about this pivot moment where you change from one regime to another. All right, so different people around the Western world, as, it were, as I have just said, are working on this. And I'm going to take what some people have come up with and I've contributed to, which is to think about four different elements. So think about this as going into battle and you've got your four armies, right? You've got your four, your four elements and they're going in towards the elites and I'm going to go through them and then I'm going to say how they interact and it's how they interact right which is important think about you know the strategy of a battle yeah yeah you've got your four armies but it's what you do with them right it's how the generals like move them around and go and all that stuff all right so the first one is something you know many of us many of you watching this video know about right which is civil resistance civil resistance. We've talked about it lots, but just to reiterate, civil resistance is the process of creating peaceful social disruption, you know, non-cooperation or active disruption. And what it does is captures attention, it galvanizes the debate, it provides a trigger to create um, recruitment, it polarizes, it has a danger of being overpolarizing. It can become stranded, as it were, if it's not connected with other social formations. Okay, but it's, it's an essential element, right? Without disruption, you don't get the drama. You don't, it's like, it's the thing that animates the system. Okay, 
So then we have assemblies. You've just done four, four uh, episodes on the assemblies. So what we know is this is what gives the solidity to the revolutionary project. Yeah, you've got the civil resistance, you've got the street movement, but where do ordinary people fit into this? Where do you create a mass movement? Where do you um, create this upsurgence of democratic confidence, democratic um, uh, know-how and confidence? Um, okay, so what you do is you have these assemblies and we'll talk about that more in a minute. All right, so the thing to say at this point is this is the classical last year you know, last few months of a pre-revolutionary period is where you have this alternative institutionalization through assemblies that aggregate, let's say, into a national assembly. And then you have the street movement, you have the civil re resistance. Um, and you see this in all the classical revolutionary theory and all the classical revolutionary case studies. So in the English Revolution, you have the parliament and then you have the mobilisation for the civil war. In those days, they always used to like, have wars uh, rather than civil resistance, right? But you can see the two things going together. The army defended the parliament and the parliament gave solidity to the notion of the people's will. In the Russian Revolution, you had uh, the Soviets or the Duma and um, and then you had the big street protest, you know, big marches. The two supported each other. You couldn't get rid of the Soviets because if you did, people would come out onto the street. The people on the street didn't really know what was happening, what they wanted. You know, it was all very confused, but it was actualized and aggregated uh, the common will, the collective will, as you might say, uh, through the Soviets. So this is what we want, you know, land, uh, peace and all the rest of it. In the French Revolution, you had the Estates General and then various sort of iterations of an alternative institution and the king or the aristocracy would try and get rid of them every now and again and you had this backwards and forwards movement over two or three years uh, where they get rid of the institution or try to and then it'd go through Paris and everyone would come out on the streets and they protect their institution, right? So there's a really common pattern here and the, the, take, the, the central strategic takeaway point is that um, you have to have both, right? You have to have both. And we've seen, you know, we'll look at some sort of half successful examples over the later neoliberal period, you know, the last 10 years. Um, and we can see in these examples how they half got it right. You know, like in Iceland, they brought down the government, but they didn't maintain a street movement. And when the institution, you know, wanting the new constitution went to parliament, then they were outmaneuvered by the elites and the institution, the assembly to create the, the new constitution had no real power because they'd been outmaneuvered because the street movement had gone home, as you might say. All right. So, you know, this is this is the broad battle plan. But what we've been discussing in various various groups in terms of this strategy is is including two other more embellishing elements. So you can see this, you've got the, the main attack as it were, and then you've got these flank movements, these elements which could actually be major elements, but they are, they're critical add-ons, right? If you, if you think about a traditional battle, you know, the two main forces, they go like this, and then it's really what happens on the flank which decides the battle. But you obviously have to have these people going head-to-head, -head, but, you know, once you've got them going to head-to-head, -head, the, the street movement and the assemblies, 
what else is going on. So what else is going on is culture. So culture, this is the third element. Culture is really interesting and it works on various levels because it's quite a, you know, it's quite an abstract word, isn't it? So let's concretize it. What, on one level, what it means is cultural figures. So what we find in the run-up towards a revolutionary period is that politics and the phrase politics has become discredited. So lots of people are saying, oh, I'm fed up, you know, I hate political parties, I hate politics. And this is often misunderstood as, as apathy, you know, resignation, all this. No, what it is, is suppressed rage against the political system because the political system is, is, has become consolidated into one, one elite strategy. There isn't pluralism. There's no genuine pluralism. You know, you can't nationalise the railways in, in the UK, even though everyone wants it because there's this big consensus between the two big parties and all the rest of it, right? So, so what happens in pre-revolutionary periods is, is it's cultural change or what is called cultural change or cultural figures that initiate this revolutionary period and become the symbols of it and the promoters of it. But of course, when they're called cultural, they're called cultural because they're outside the political system, but obviously, objectively, they are, this is a massively political move. So when Gary Lineker, for instance, you know, goes in and against the BBC, he's a cultural figure, but it's profoundly political what he's doing, which is, you know, he's standing up for refugees or, or, or whatever. But the reason he's politically successful is because he's outside the political system. So this is one key element of why culture is so important. So there's a famous example in Czechoslovakia in 1989, you know, all the intellectuals and artists, they'd all been excluded from the system and they were window cleaners and all this sort of thing. And then when the revolutionary period happened, they came to the fore. So they were the people who were talking to people, you know, on the balcony and people were singing songs and some famous singer who'd never been allowed to sing for 20 years. And this is what created the emotionality, the sociability that, that brought about the, the courage to actually do the revolutionary street movement and the street movement supporting, you know, the alternative institutionalization. All right, so this is really important to understand. The cultural element is not, it's not the cultural element, right? The cultural element is the key political element that overcomes politics as people commonly understand it. The other thing that cultural figures do, particularly in the present context, of course, is they can amplify, right? They can amplify, they've got big social media uh, um, presence. So the political system thinks it controls, you know, the elite system as it presently exists, thinks it controls the public sphere. What they don't realise is the public sphere is not the public sphere. You know, the public sphere is this narrow Westminster system in the UK. But outside it, you know, there's people doing, you know, YouTube videos on how to put lipstick on. And you think, oh, that's irrelevant. It's not irrelevant at all. Because in a pre-revolutionary period, the, the woman showing you how to put lipstick on is going to say at the end of, end of her... Pod, yeah, her, her podcast or, or YouTube video, she can, you know, in the pre-revolutionary period, she, she can talk to her mate and go, oh yeah, the lipsticks, you know, we've done the lipstick, but everything's shit at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> and, and suddenly, like, there starts to be this sort of cultural conversation, which is actually very political. Um, 
And in other words, people are validated. People start to think, oh, these cultural figures that I respect and they're cool, they're on our side. And you start to get this amplification of a, of a, of first of all, of a, of, of a common understanding that we're all pissed off, right? And then the second element is we're all pissed off and this needs to happen. You know, here, I put the lipstick on and now we're going to go to the assembly. Has, does everyone know about the assembly? You know, it's like, this is cool. You should go to it. You know, it's that sort of thing. And then lastly, of course, these people have money. So it's not the foundations, you know, it's not the big political parties. It's not, it's not the corporate class. It's not the charities. They're all relevant. They're part of the system. Revolutions are created by eccentric rich people who support uh, the revolutionary period. In other words, cultural figures who are independent of, of the system. Um, are not tied in. So everyone who's tied into the system, you know, the democracy industry, for instance, you know, they're not going to support anything because they're going to lose, they're going to lose their contracts or there's the fear that they're going to lose their contracts. What's, the people who are going to support the revolution are going to be people that made a load of money. They're self-made, paradoxically, from the neoliberal system. And now they're 40, 50, 60. They don't give a shit anymore. You know, <laughs> they've got 20 more years of life. They want to do something important. They want to give money to a revolutionary episode because they're not dumb. They know that that's the only way change happens. So you've got this cultural element. So I'm going on about this, but it's quite important. You've got this cultural element, you know, in terms of the top level people. But then you've got like the bottom level, which is having the parties, right? The sociability element, which we've talked about in previous episodes, right? So, you know, you're putting on an award ceremony for the best local people who've been nominated by all the local people. You're, you're having a party and then people going around and signing up to do leafleting or, you know, go to go to an assembly and what have you. Um, you you're having a carnival along the streets. Uh, you're having a gig, you're having a music event, you're having a rave, right? You're having a festival. But all these things, instead of just being, being um, separated off from the political space, they are now inter integrated into it which I'll talk more, more about in a sec. So then we, so that's the culture, right? So we've got civil resistance, you know, civil disobedience, public action. We've got assemblies, alternative institutionalization. We've got the culture. Um, what else? The last thing is standing elections. So this causes lots of confusion, right? Because, you know, our, our, cult, our cultural trigger when we say, uh, elections is oh that means political party oh that means like the Labour Party or that means like the conventional parties if you're listening to this from other countries you know oh that's the system oh god Rogers you know he's, he's telling us to you know join the system everything's going to get corrupted quite possibly right quite possibly but not necessarily and this depends on mid-level design so two you know historically there's two elements of mid-level design, which don't lead to appropriation. The first one is standing elections as a direct action, right? So let's get out of this, you know, neoliberal categorization anchoring, you know, politics is, is, is pursuing the, the neoliberal system. No, 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 it doesn't have to, right? You can stand in the election and, you know, walk around the streets with no clothes on and tell people, you know, you know, God's coming to save us. <laughs> you can do whatever you like. Standing in standing in an election is simply a bureaucratic act. How you create cultural meaning afterwards entirely entirely up to you. So, you know, you've got the monster raving loony party in the UK. 
they're not getting appropriated, not particularly useful either. But you can you can see if you've been clever about it and say, okay, we can stand as a direct action. We're going to disrupt. We're going to put, you know, leaflets out. You know, these get subsidised by the state. We're going to get loads of publicity for this general revolutionary project. We're going to be do have a glorious failure. It doesn't matter because you're getting the word your word out there. The other strategy is is things come through the assembly and you get these tipping points. And you get a genuine community candidate standing in a constituency in the UK or, you know, where you've got proportional representation. You start getting some sort of um, traction, right? Because you're speaking the truth and you've got these assemblies around the country and you've got these cultural figures supporting you and all the rest of it. And the people who stand in the elections um, are, are, are standing for the assemblies, I'll talk about this more, or, talk, or, or are disciplined, right? They're in a the disciplined space. So, you know, we can see this historically, for instance, like with communist MPs, you know, arguably they did get appropriated by, by the system, but also arguably they didn't, you know, they were there for a revolutionary uh, episode and they had a clear ideology and a clear discipline and that, that had pros and cons. But the point is, is, you know, the point is you don't need to, appropriation isn't, isn't inevitable. And in so much as it's not, then you have another army on the field, right? You've got the people in the system. They talk to, you know, ministers, they talk to civil servants, they talk to the police, they find out what's going on. So this is really important. So you've got an insider strategy, as they call it, and you've got the outsider strategy. And it's the two together that, that, um, that synergize and, and point you towards success. So th this is the final point about this, which is that each of these things, as I, you know, I do talks about this around the country at the moment, what, what gets people excited is, is when I say that each of these items, right, they, everyone knows what they all look like and they're all boring, right, from a cynical or even realistic point of view. It's like, oh, yeah, we tried direct action now, oh, we put people up as candidates in the Green Party, you know, it doesn't uh, no what what's inter interesting here is two things number one is the close interaction between these different elements so again you know looking at the battlefield sort of analogy and by the way i'm just looking at that as a system right i'm not interested in the whole violence thing or you know what i'm looking at is a game right you in a game you've got you've now got four elements on on, on the field of play and you've got four elements, it's obviously better than having two. You know, if you've only got two elements, maybe you're just not going to get to the tipping point. If you've got three, maybe. If you've got four, you've got 50-50 chance, right? So what's interesting here is, is the myriad ways in which these four different elements move together. And no one quite knows, we've got some hunches about how to do this, you know, particularly with the street movement and the assemblies, but there's probably other moves. and. The point is here is, is we pivot, right? So these elements, these elements are uh, going into battle and they're going to support each other and stop, it, stop them getting isolated. And you're going to have this strategic leadership, right? Which is sort of moving them around, as you might say. Um, so there's an analogy here with, you know, I've spoken to this in previous episodes with the A22 network, which is just a civil resistance network or organisation. Um, which has created some of the most successful civil resistance episodes in the Western world. Why has this been successful? Because there's four elements, right? There's four different elements. And 
if you want to join the network you have to do those four elements and if you just do two of them it doesn't really work but if you do three maybe you're in the ballpark if you do four you've got 60 70 percent chance of becoming you know the most significant climate civil disobedience project in your country that's exciting right because this is what design's all about it's going you know this is what logistics is all about with the romans it's like if you get all your preparations sorted out if you do your design properly then you're more or less certain to win because we've done it before you replicate it and particularly around the western world you know i mean it's arguable whether this is the case in other places you know it's a separate discussion but around the western world broadly speaking all the societies are much of a muchness there's massive alienation from the neoliberal elite you know there's austerity there's you know loads of other tensions there's massive inequality and there's democratic traditions which enable you to create these these uh, iterations all right so there you are those are the you know that's the that's going into battle as it were okay so i'm going to give a battle plan to continue this rather you know tricky analogy but let's look at the battle plan so i'm going to give you one battle plan and then i'm going to give a few subplots on it right so what some of us in the uk are doing and in other countries we've designed this plan yeah it may work it may need altering it may be rubbish but it's our best bet at the moment so what we do is we create 50 assemblies local assemblies around the country and I've already discussed the details so I'm not going to talk to you about how you set them up and all the rest of it you can look at the previous episodes of that so these 50 assemblies um, at the end of them there's pathways to action right um, four people write up a report you do videos short videos of people saying what they thought about what needs to happen in society and four or five of those people for the sake of argument are delegated to go to a national assembly or maybe it's a city assembly so it's an aggregate assembly so let's do it on the national scale so that the national assembly uh, is held and that takes you know defined and formal inputs it's not symbolic it's real you've got these inputs the written inputs the video inputs you've got the people coming and they deliberate ordinary people are deliberating on the future of the country right that's the general theme within the context of the cost of living crisis within the context of of the death project by putting carbon into the atmosphere and all this stuff and what they're going to come out with is practical bread and butter like things that need to be done right the priorities whether that's free public transport you know better well insulated housing um you know promotion of uh, renewable energy uh taxation of the rich you know dum bum bum i mean these things are all fairly obvious but the point is is they all come out through this process and so they're not coming out with something abstract you know like we need to reduce carbon they're coming out with the frontline social policies that deal with all these different elements together because all these elements are fundamentally the same inter intersecting system okay and you know there's cultural elements in this there's you know cultural figures at, at this big assembly there's workshops there's you know a gig with a rave you know all this sort of stuff you know footballers shake people's hands it's always my big thing when people come into the national assembly i'm going to go and see one or two footballers in the next few weeks dare i say it anyway so um um 
Yeah, and then, you know, this is a sort of linear system, but we're going to embellish it in a minute. So you do the local assemblies, got the national assembly, come out with a pledge card. These are the five things that people of Britain, of your country, want. There's media on it, the right-wing media say this is outrageous, you know, this isn't democracy, you know, and all the stuff that they're going to make up about it. That's great because the right-wing media will amplify the message because then everyone will start talking about it. The right-wing media will make that structural mistake they always make at the present moment in pre-revolutionary periods. They think they're arrogant enough to think that everyone's going to agree with them, but then people are going to look and go, actually, that assembly's great. Thank you very much, Daily Mail, for letting me know about it. Actually, those guys are great because someone's come out and they're an electrician and they're saying, you know, I used to be against assemblies, but now this is actually great, you know, got a voice at last, you know, fuck off, Daily Mail. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is it. So, so you get this amplification and then you get the moment of confrontation with the regime because it's going, hang on a minute, we represent the people of the UK. This is what we want. We want these five things. You're saying no, no, no. Okay, we're going to have a demonstration in London you know, in the capital city or in regional cities, we're going to stop paying taxes, we're going to sit down until we get our top three things, uh, um, you know, discussed in Parliament, or variations on the theme. In other words, this is when the direct action system comes in. All right, so, so you can see that as the main thrust, and it's good enough to go as the main thrust, let's say. But it's not the main thrust that's going to win. It's going to be all the subplots, you know, the different elements around it. So I'm going to do two subplots or two flank attacks to use the other analogy. So the first one is like the dynamo in these local assemblies. So again, you know, watch the previous episodes for more details about this. But what we're looking at is, is these assemblies going, and actually the local council is rubbish as well and we're going to go and occupy the council offices or we're going to have a demonstration, we're going to have a campaign on housing, on sewerage or, you know, whatever is, is sort of doing people's heads in. So then you're creating this culture of people taking direct action. So when the National Assembly is rebutted by the regime, it's like you've got a hundred different assemblies around the country that have some experience of doing civil disobedience, okay? So it's like, you know, having your, they're battle-hardened, as it were. They know how to do it. They know how to do affinity groups. They know how to do, you know, uh, uh, legal briefings. They know how to do post-arrest support. So you've got this growing culture of people going, yeah, yeah, right, you know, we occupied Hall County Council because they wouldn't, you know, do anything on water pollution. Um, we won there. Now we're going to go down to London because we want free public transport in the UK because... You know, that's the only way we're going to get people out of cars and all the rest of it. So that's one subplot. The other subplot, obviously, is the local elections, right? So standing in the, standing in the local elections, that gives people, again, confidence to then start standing in, in the national elections. It gives people an insider knowledge about how lobbying works, how the corruption works, how the insider government works, so that when you're actually you know, after the revolution, as it were, you already know how the system works. This is, can't be underestimated in terms of how important it is because, as we've discussed several times, the Tahrir Square scenario is, yeah, you've got this massive street movement and they sort of win and then no one knows what to do because no one knows how to do what they want to do. Well, if you've got this 
you know, like with the labour movement in the early 20th century, they've had local councillors 20 years, you know, they've had a few MPs. They understand how it works. Yes, you've got the danger of appropriation. We're going to talk about that a bit more in a minute. But it's another big element, right, in, in your four armies. So your four armies, not only, they're not just armies, they actually have specialisms, right, you know, in terms of this holistic plan to appropriate the public space and to remove the regime and to create a new regime without it all being a big shit show, you know, civil war or chaos, which no one wants, right? We're not talking about chaos here. We're talking about revolution, which functionally moves into a new regime. And yes, you know, yes, 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 this is difficult and it could create chaos and all the rest of it. But there is chaos and chaos, right? And you can minimise chaos by having this really smart logistical uh, strategy okay all right so i just want to i want to we're going to be going on for yeah yeah going on for a little while <laughs> okay let me just check uh oh yeah yeah we're all right okay so let's just yeah take a slight tangent here just for those of you who are thinking, yeah, yeah, you know, this isn't really going to work. It's already worked partially, right? And as we understand when we study complexity theory, and we talked about this loads, okay, haven't we? Where we're going, in complexity theory, you, you fail, you half fail, you half fail, you half fail, and then you win. And the only reason you win is because you totally failed, and then you half failed, you half failed, and you half failed, and then you won. So failure is part of the system, it's part of the logistics, it's part of the subplot, it's part of the preparation for the win. Because you're never going to know how to win unless you've half failed. So this is why it's instructive to look at what you might call half failures or half wins. And I'm just going to quickly look at, you know, four of them. And you might want to read books on them because the devil's in the detail here, okay? So it's really interesting to study these, these recent case studies. So the first one is Syriza. We've talked about this before. You know, a Marxist party, it didn't want to reconcile it with the whole meta-framing of the neoliberal period, you know. It was saying, we're Marxists, we want to have a revolution, we, we want to get rid of capitalism, we're not having anything to do with it. And the unintended consequence of this was when there was a genuine objective crisis, you know, debt crisis in... 2014, I think it was around then. The reason why they were propelled into greatness, I mean, literally, because they weren't, dare I say it, that smart in terms of the mobilisation and strategy. They were propelled into greatness because they weren't part of the system, right? You know, this comes back to this thing I've said before, when you're knocking on the door, the main line is we're not them, right? People look at, it doesn't matter what you are, which is why fascism is so successful. It's like, oh, fascism is not them. Great, let's vote fascist. People vote fascists not because they're fascists, it's because fascists aren't them, which is the system that has, you know, destroyed our communities and destroyed our sense of well-being and all the rest of it, right? So, so what was in, what's interesting about that is the, what we can learn from this is the assembly movement, you know, maybe it will only get 4% of the vote like Syriza, but it doesn't matter because they're waiting for the moment of rupture and as we've discussed, when the moment of rupture comes, there'll be a thousand people in the assembly meetings going, we want to do this, we want to do this. And the great thing is you'll be prepared, unlike Syriza, arguably, to actually, you know, have the strategic leadership to take control of the state, which obviously happened to Syriza. But Syriza didn't do assemblies, they didn't have a, 
uh, a revolutionary strategy and they basically ended up, you know, crumbling under the weight of the assault from, you know, the neoliberal EU situation. You can read about it. Um, so second, we've got Podemos. With Podemos, what's interesting is, yeah, you had the street movement, sounds good. Then you had the political party, sounds good. So you've got your two armies, right? And then, again, they moved into power, but they didn't interact. We'll talk about this more in the revolution after the revolution uh, episodes that are coming down, you know, after this, after this uh, talk. Um, so they got semi-appropriated, right? But what, what is good about this half failure is they got 30% you know, support from the country. Well, that's not bad because they did it in about a year. So it's, uh, you know, went from 4% to 40%. In other words, what these case studies show us is in Western societies, there is a massive desire for something different. And if you can get your shit together and you show people, hey, this is different and it's organised and you have a programme and all the rest of it, and you've got all these different elements, suddenly you have this big whoosh effect which is, oh my God, maybe these are the people who are going to get us out of this, you know, neoliberal prison and all the rest of it. All right. So the third one, you know, which is very similar, of course, to uh, Podemos is, is Corbyn. So Corbyn has the subplot of the whole anti-Semitic sort of thing. And you can look at it. And many people, you know, watching this will be familiar with this example. Half a million people join the Labour Party. You know, there's a, a semi a semi sort of organised move towards, you know, local assembly, local community activism. But it doesn't really get off the ground because the big problem with the Corbyn project is it, it's it's, it takes place within the meta frame and meta organisational logic of a Labour Party that has no interest in revolutionary change, no interest in participatory politics, right? It's a uh, it's a sort of reformist, Stalinist state, if that's not too much of a contradiction. Um, Stalinist organisation where one sector, you know, one element, either the left or the right, gets control. And then there's this culture of getting rid of people rather than having pluralism. And as many people will be familiar, that's basically what's happened since uh, Corbyn has uh, got chucked out and all the rest of it. Okay, and then we've got the Macron example in France. Now, what's interesting about the Macron example, obviously, you know, you're probably sitting there going, well, that's nothing to do with revolution. That's not the point. Look at the dynamic, right? A lot of discontent. The, the, the new model can come from the right, it can come from the centre, it can come from the left. It's the model that we're looking at here. The model was, uh, someone told me, 5,000 people spoke to, you know, tens of thousands of people. And the question was, what do you want the new France to look like? And so they got and they got basically an idea of what they wanted the programme to be. But also, or potentially, they could have mobilised, and I think they did to a certain extent, mobilised those 50,000 people to go, OK, so let's put candidates up. And to a certain extent, they got non-political, you know, candidates, ordinary people to stand, uh, paradoxically, on a centralist, centrist sort of uh, uh, programme. And um, the point here is, again... This party went from zero to, you know, I, can't, I don't know how, what percentage of the vote, but they won the election, arguably within six months. Yes, arguably with a lot of banker money, you know. But it's interesting, isn't it? That, that wouldn't have happened in the 1980s or something. So you've got four examples in four different Western countries of half failures using models of sort of insurrectionary sort of dynamics not in the violent sense of the word, but the sense of there's the system and we're doing something different and we benefit because we're out of the system, 
right? This is the critical point. It's like we're not the system and that's why we get elected. Well, in the good old days, you know, in the reformist days, if you're outside the system, no one's going to be interested in you because everyone thinks everything's pretty much okay. In the pre-revolutionary paradigmic sort of social system, the logics are the opposite, which is if you're outside the system, that's actually good electorally for you, or it's good from a mobilisation point for you, because people are looking for that. Oh, you're not part of the system. Great, I'm going to vote for you. Oh, you're not part of the system. Oh, right, I'm going to the assembly. That's just ordinary people. Great. You know, it's not dominated by the local council telling everyone they're going to do great stuff and then do nothing and all that, you know, bollocks. <laughs> okay. All right. So you can see, you can see you've got this, you know, we've got our armies. We're going to take them into battle. We've got the main scenario. We've got these little side plots. We can see these half half successors, as it were. So this is starting to happen now, and I want to focus in the you know next 15 minutes on not, on not pretending this is easy, okay? We've talked, you know, I've just talked about a reformist period and a pre-revolutionary period, and these are ideal types, you know, in sociology, ideal types are like, sort of perfect constructions, which actually in reality, obviously it's a more messy. So we've said and the ideal type of the reformist period is people just aren't interested in revolutionary change, like changing the regime. In the pre-revolutionary period, they are, but they're socially repressed. And in the revolutionary period, they're not socially repressed and there's a revolution happening as a result. Now, the particular problem with the pre-revolutionary period it's extremely difficult to calibrate the degree of social repression and when it's going to explode. So, for instance, you know, if you look in individual psychology, you know, someone's really annoyed. Yeah, they're really annoyed, but they don't want to say anything. That's easy. It's easy to identify that. You see that right across the Western world. You can see that in pers people's personal lives. And you say, that person's going to explode soon. But it's really difficult to tell, isn't it? You know, it's like, you know, you know, you've got someone's got an abusive partner or something. It's like they've got to leave. They know they've got to leave. They could be with them again in six months' time, and everyone's going, "Oh my God, they've just got to do it." Uh, or sometimes they just do it next week, and they don't know, and it's really difficult to predict because you've got this complex system going on. You know, either in terms of their individual psychology or on the social level, all, all these different groups. So. The conundrum here, in terms of design, is, okay, do you, do you be purely revolutionary? We are a revolutionary party, we're revolutionary assemblies, and you're using that word. The benefit of using that word, or similar words like that, is, is, is clear. You put your cards on the table, and you're inspiring people with your honesty, and your fearlessness, and your rhetoric. So you go into the assembly and say, guys, this is the situation, you know, dun, 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 dun. you know it's the situation. And in this assembly today, you, you can make decisions about it. And the, subli the, the hypothesis here is the subliminal message is, is we are giving you in permission in this space to say what you really think, which is you're really pissed off, okay? But there's a counter argument, which is you're basically like telling people what to do. So the devil's in the detail, right? So, in other words, you shouldn't be standing up saying, you need to think this, right? This isn't top-down Leninist. You need to agree with, 
you know, the end of capitalism, otherwise you're shits and go into your small groups and discuss this and you better come out with the right answer, right? Obviously that's not that cool. But also arguably uncool is this liberal purist scenario where you go, we haven't got any opinions, you can just decide what you want. In other words, like the neoliberal system is in the room. You know, this is the big problem with the liberal hypothesis, which is, oh, it's a neutral space. No, it's not. Because unless you provide a space for people to actually identify and connect with their pissed offness and radicalness, then the subliminal thing is, particularly, you know, if it's run by the council, for instance, you know, it's like, oh, we've just got to come up with shitty little ideas, you know, about nicer bus stops or something. All right, so you can see this tension because um, at this moment, at this, um, at this moment of creating your assembly, you've got a decision to make about how much to frame and structure the space and how much not to. And of course, the, you know, the solution probably is somewhere in between the two. Um, and then the other problem is, okay, so let's say, so that's the design of the assembly. Okay, so let's say we, we don't interfere and we just say, okay, we're going to do a assemblies and then it goes to the National Assembly. And then the National Assembly comes up with these, um, comes up with these five points on a, a pledge card. And then the government says, no. Um, how do you know that the people in those assemblies are going to automatically go into some sort of civil disobedience mode? There's a strong hypothesis you'll say they won't because they've got no culture of resistance because they've been put there by, you know, a lot of the assemblies have been organised by organisations that simply aren't going to encourage civil disobedience because in a semi-authoritarian situation like the UK, everyone's scared stiff because they're going to lose their contract, they're going to lose their job, they're going to lose their connections, they're going to have it on their CV, you know, it's going to be like checks when they try and get a new job. In other words, like, if you introduce the new liberal administrative system, you know, the local charities, the uh, food banks, you know, all these are full of people that have a charity logic, right? This is not a revolutionary uh, logic, obviously. So there's a tension here, isn't there? Which is maybe 20% of that space actually wants to, you know, is open to a progression that leads to system change. But 80% of the local community space is either going to be demoralised or charity-esque or locked into um, a neoliberal performative uh, culture because they're scared of money and losing their power. Or, of course, a combination of all three. All right, so arguably at the beginning of a pre-revolutionary period, it just isn't possible. You see what I mean? If you're revolutionary at the beginning, you frighten people off. If you're not revolutionary at the beginning, you get appropriated. In other words, objectively, it's just not going to happen. That's on the borderline of a reformist period and a pre-revolutionary period. And you don't know how much you're into the pre-revolutionary period, of course, until you try it. So it's possible in some places in the West world at some points, you know, at the present moment, it's just not going to happen. You know, you, you just can't, the design isn't going to do the deal. You're going to lose whichever way you, where you go. But of course... You know, the whole of this, this series is predicated on the idea that's not the case. 
it is possible to have a little bit of a pre-revolutionary framing. It is possible to have loads of assemblies. It is possible for people to come out and get pissed off and engage in civil disobedience. So we'll see, won't we? And no doubt there'll be a number of half failures along the way. Okay, so you can see the problem here, right? And But we've got another card in our pack here, which is strategic and charismatic leadership. And this is what's massively missing in the whole horizontalist experience of the last 20 years. And one of the primary reasons why in this year before the revolutionary the revolution happens, right? This pre-revolutionary period, let's call it a year, where we're trying to build up the assemblies, you know, political candidates, uh, cultural events, all this sort of stuff. There has to be this vanguard element in the system which disciplines, organises and coordinates that system so that it doesn't all sludge into, you know, at worst dysfunction and at best sort of disconnected sort of activism. What, what I mean by this is, I'll give you three, three critical examples. Let's say you, you're trying to design, design these assemblies, right? There's enormous potential for, for um, conflict, right? Because it's really difficult to know where the balance is. The role of leadership, particularly charismatic leadership here, is that for someone, and dare I say it, I did it this week, so it's on, on my mind, is to just say, okay, this is where the balance is going to be. You know, someone has reasonable amount of authority or, or the core group's going, we don't know, but we're going to try this. But the fundamental thing is we've made a decision, right? We've made a decision to do something. Could be wrong. But the critical thing is to make the decision as opposed to just having endemic conflict and attritional sort of stress within, within the assembly system. This is how we're doing it. We might uh, iterate on it. We might make a new decision. But at the moment, this is the standard model, right? The second purpose of like charismatic leadership is to go, look, lots of people come into the space and they say, oh, this won't work because it will put people off. In other words, what left-wing activists do all the time, which drives me mad, and we've talked about this lots, is they regurgitate the neoliberal-like logic. So the Daily Mail, the right-wing press will say, oh, the activists are putting people off. And stupidly, the left-wing activists say, oh, you're putting people off. Empirically, like, maybe they are, maybe they're not. But the point is, is defeatism is just appallingly, like, stupid because you're basically doing, doing the, working, the ruling class's work for it, right? You know, the main reason left-wing projects fail isn't because of the right-wing, it's because the left-wing people are just so miserable and cynical and, you know, conflictorial and all the rest of it. So what charismatic leadership does says, that's what the right-wing people are, are saying, you know, that's what the right-wing press is saying, we're going to make it different this time, right? And the reason they, it is different is because people believe it will be different, right? <laughs> they'll, be, uh, they'll go, no, actually, assemblies can do this. We can get ordinary people involved, and they can, be, and it happens because they believe it is. In other words, they feel encouraged and they go out and do it. And the third thing is, is you know, at this critical moment when the assemblies you know, all come together, you've got this critical moment where they say, here's the pledge card and the government says, piss off. That's the moment again for charismatic leadership. Someone stands up and says, we're not going to stand for this. And this could be someone who emerges or some people who emerge from 
the assembly process, right? These are ordinary people, someone who used to be an electrician, and they stand up and go, well, you I tell you what, you know, I've just spent like the last two months being involved in this process. If the government isn't going to, you know, do anything, then I tell you what, we're all going to go down to London and we're going to sit in Parliament Square for three days because, you know, I'm over all the shit. And if, you're, if you don't do it, I'm going to do it anyway. And so you've got someone who comes through that process, a charismatic person. But the design point here is that you proactively look for these charismatic people and then embed them, of course, within a control system so they don't end up being really super weird or egotistic or Leninist or whatever, right? So again, it's a sophisticated design. But what's critical, critical here is this is a new element, right? Which, which um, is absolutely critical in, in my view. Uh, um, in, in a sort of synergistic relationship with the other elements in the system. Okay, and this is, this is supported by my friend Paul Engler. I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning him. So I've had a few chats with him. He wrote, um, this is an uprising, which you might want to read. Very good book. There you are, just uh, telling you that. <laughs> okay, but you know, we had a good chat about key, the key uh, elements in incubating movements. And he said, and I largely agree with him, is... The two elements are charismatic leadership, prophetic leadership, as he, I think he calls it, and trigger events. In other words, you need someone who's driving that process forward. You know, like me on these this, these podcasts, it's like, come on, guys, we can do this. We can do this. You know, who's uh, going to stand up and, you know, get a tingle going down people's spines. And then the other thing is the trigger event, right? You've got to go and cause disruption. There has to be direct action in the system. Someone has to go and, you know, blockade a big parade and say, hello, we're here. And everyone hates it, but it gets that whole system going as we've investigated in detail in previous episodes. So you can see like this, you know, in this last year, these two things are working together. They're working with your four armies. And the last element here is is the international situation people are doing you know they're trying to work out this conundrum on how neutral the assembly should be in lots of different countries and they say oh maybe if you do this you know it's better and it is literally about the phrases you use and you know where the tables are put and all, all, all the rest of it all right so i'm going to do the second problem then which is a bit you know this general problem but i'll talk about specific sort of conundrum. So the, the general problem, as we've just established, is this centralization, decentralization, or centralization horizontalism problem. And and you can see this working, you know, in this very fraught idea of putting up candidates, because people are rightly suspicious. You know, are you going to get appropriated in the system? Are you going to turn into some useless, you know, hopeless political party and such like? So what I've been working on, I'm not saying this is the last word in the matter, is a is a, again a sophisticated system that combines the two logics right the horizontalist logic is right you know hey guys we don't want you know some patriarchal male you know egotistical leaders you know da 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 you know we, we need to make decisions ourselves yeah yeah that's true as far as it goes but at the same time you've got the sort of leninist hierarchical sort of model which is this needs to be driven by a strategically intelligent and coherent um, central group, Vanguard, and we know all the problems with that. But we also know, you know, to get the Russian Revolution on the go, you know, give the guy a bit of credit. Okay, so, um, so here, here's a design. So yes, you're probably familiar now, right? You're going to have these assemblies. So let's say you take an average Western city, you have five to ten assemblies, depending on the size. 
At those assemblies, people are nominated to stand in the elections, the local elections or in the national elections. So they don't, they, they're not, they, they, you can either use sortition or you're in your groups of eight and they go, oh, you know, you have a little secret ballot and they say, oh, Joe's quite a cool guy, I'm going to vote for Joe. So everyone anonymously votes for someone that they've got to know. And then, and then, you know, everyone then goes into a hustings process. So maybe you select one or two people from each assembly and then there's 10 people, there's eight people or five people, whatever, and they go to a bunch of hustings where they talk and people ask them questions. And then there's a direct debit in this open husting for the assembly, for the constituency election or for the council elections. And ordinary people then select other ordinary people. But this is where it gets interesting, I think, and these are my, you know, innovations in so much as no one else has thought of them. So they then, the people who are going to stand for election, they take an oath in public. So they write it out and it's all very cultural and it's got ritualistic elements and maybe it's sort of funny. But the bottom line is they write, they write saying, I, um, I promise to enact the will of the local assemblies. In other words, when they go into par Parliament or the local council, they're going to say, I'm not here for myself. I'm for here for the people of Birmingham, you know, wherever. And I'm going to, they're going to do an assembly. So I'm going to tell you what they say. And if I don't agree with it, tough, doesn't matter. I'm going to be a conduit for their will, as it were. Okay, so then it raises the issue of the assemblies. So it's sort of moving down the line in terms of the design. So obviously these assemblies, once someone's elected to the council or to parliament, they need to enact the will of assemblies which are organised. They need to be quality controlled. They can't be rubbish ones. And they need to be genuine reflections of local opinions. In other words, they need to be organised in a specific way. So then the question is, who ensures that they are designed in a special way? Well, your revolutionary sort of organisation, right? So this is, you know, this is working off what happened in Porto Alegre. The Workers' Party came to power. They instituted regional assemblies. But if the regional assemblies started getting infiltrated by the meat, the mafia or degenerate in you know, numerous different ways, they'd disband the assembly and they'd start another one. In other words, it has to be held by a body which is in charge of making sure they run well. And we all know that you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons, ways in which they can be held well or not held well. So then you've got the next question, which is who controls the people who control <laughs> the quality of the elections, right? So then arguably what you have is, you know, you have your revolutionary organisation, but all the people that are members of that in, in the city of Birmingham, let's say, they create this 20 or 30 of those people are selected by sortition. So you don't get the corruption of self-selection and the sortition council controls the body which controls the quality of the assemblies. So if they start getting corrupted, then you've got this assembly body. So this works a little bit like a board, you know, in a normal company or charity. They're not hands-on, they're not operational, but if something weird happens, you know, some abuse or some big conflict or some bad practice, they can intervene and they can oversee the selection of new people to that, that operational body. So again, as, as I said, you know, um, the beginning of this, if you're interested in this, email me because there's a whole bunch of details there, right? And they no doubt, you know, will get changed around as different iterations of this work. But the point here isn't that this, whether this works perfectly or doesn't work perfectly. The point here is 
is the beauty of design and iteration on design, right? So instead of just having this big abstract debate between horizontalism and Leninism or, you know, vertical functional hierarchy, what you're saying is, okay, so let's come up with a smart design like they did in Porto Alegre. And it's somewhere in that ballpark where you optimise um, this other major problem, right? Which is maintaining the quality of that army, right? Your people who are going to stand in elections so they don't get appropriated. So this is what you might call like maintenance of your armies, right? As they move into battle. And it's each stage that they move into battle, you need to have these maintenance mechanisms to make sure they don't degenerate and you keep morale and, and, and such like. Okay, so <clears throat> I'm going to stop there. Uh, and But that's broadly what the year running up to it looks like, right? On the basis of all those other episodes. Uh, what we're going to look at in talk two of this revolution uh, uh, chapter is we're going to look at the, the, the month, <laughs> the month before the revolution and then the week, right? Uh, the, this is all important stuff and obviously this is the stuff of history. So that's what we're going to look at next time and then we're going to go on to making sure it doesn't all collapse in a heap you know, a week afterwards or a year afterwards, the revolution after the revolution. Okay, that's it. Thanks so much.